This week's podcast brought to you by Tertiary Pantries. It was a wild weekend of a wild Sunday of NFC and AFC championship games in the NFL. Both uh, had controversial calls. The Saints feel like they got screwed uh, out of a trip to the Super Bowl by the referees. And um, there was a crazy play in the in the New England um, game where Julian Edelman appeared to f- touch a ball while he was fielding the punt, but it turns out he didn't. But it was you know a quarter of an inch uh, discrepancy. And it occurred to me that in the future there will be one NFL game contested annually, uh, but then the next eight months of the season will be taken up by the court case deciding who won that game. And those court cases will be televised. Everybody will find it just as entertaining as the NFL season was, and it will eliminate a lot of the NFL's problems with head trauma and and other things. Or I could just ask Tony Romo what's going to happen. Saying says no pain, no gain, and we found that to be fact. The road might twist and turn a bit, but we all arrive intact. Mr. Mom and Mrs. Dad having each other's back. Day by day, just to keep it sane. Who's the ball and who's the chain? It's hard to tell right here on Happiness Lane. A greetings from our freezing basement. Uh, I think it was zero when I woke up this morning. I don't know what the wind chill was. It's not just our basement that's freezing. Well, as you're as you're pointing out right now, the, our kids had a two-hour delay um, this morning to go to school because it was so cold. And of course, this is on the heels of having a three-day weekend that we had Martin Luther King Day off, the kids did from school, and a huge snowstorm on Sunday, which didn't let us leave the house. And this happened a few years ago, too, where we had a ton of snow days And they always happened on Monday. This one happened on Tuesday. But still, like, all parents with younger kids understand this, that when, you know, at the end of the weekend, your kids have had enough of each other, and you've generally had enough of your kids. And then we added a snow day, a long weekend, and then an extra delay this morning. It was was not welcomed by us. It was welcomed by the kids, but not by us. We didn't have a huge snowstorm. We had, what, maybe five or six inches of snow? Right. but, But then topped off with ice. Which yeah. was the which was the issue? It was our son. We were looking out the window, and he was mesmerized by the pile of snow. And then when the sleet came, the, the top part of the snow had already frozen, so the the sleet was just bouncing it off, looks, like like a kid jumping on a trampoline. And he was fascinated by that. So it was the ice that was the issue. It looks like meringue, but uh, we, I mean, it was enough snow that we weren't plowed out until noon, and we missed mass on Sunday, but still got an, an email. Uh, right. What did it say? The email said, um, you know, because of the the weather, many people weren't able to make it to mass, which is which is one of the reasons it's so important that you do your giving as e giving, so that even if you can't come to mass, your money still does. So um, <laughs> I I appreciated the email from our church. Indeed, if you are no longer living and breathing, your money can still come to us. <laughs> right. That way. Right. Exactly. Send a a bequest um, even after your long gone. What is a bequest? A request for bread is a bequest? I I don't know. I think it's just when you give money after you've died, you're bequesting. Then what is bequeathing? I don't know. Do you bequeath a bequest? 
this is um this is your territory i'm not going to even dip my toe in these waters this is where you have to come at us with the definition okay by the end of this podcast we will uh give you the distinction between bequest and bequeath as is often the case on the mornings that we record the podcast after i dropped the kids at school i went to the grocery store and um i was interested because i was behind a woman and we stop at shop, stop and shop, and um, I'm sure all grocery stores have this, where you give them a card and you get, you know, whatever the the deal is that day on the products, or it's just certain items are cheaper when you give them your card. So the the woman in front of me, the cashier asked her if she had her stop and shop card, and the woman's reply was, "I haven't had a stop and shop card since I was hacked," and um, and then the woman, the cashier said, "Okay, we'll put in the store card and in the." The woman shopping in front of me said, uh, you know, when you use these cards, they know, I don't know who they is, Stop and Shop apparently, they know exactly what you're buying. And And since I was hacked, I don't want anyone knowing exactly what I was buying. And that just made me think, what would our Stop and Shop card say about us? about you and me, like, or in particular, have you had your own stop and shop card since you go there much less frequently than me? What, what would your stop and shop card, if, if you know the little man in, in stop and shop was checking out everything you've purchased, what would it say about you? Well, I, I do know like the old joke about, you know, the food was terrible and the portions were so small. You came home today somewhat uh, guiltily with three boxes of Cap'n Crunch and you said, but there was, it was, Buy one get two free or something like that, as if as if that somehow makes feeding our kids Cap'n Crunch better or more. Uh... I know that was pretty pathetic. Our kids on occasion have Captain Crunch as a treat. I remember as a kid that was a huge treat because my mother just about never bought it except on a special occasion, and I did. I had a coupon for a couple dollars off if you bought three of them. And we have the storage space, and in this basement where we where we record the podcast, we have a table that has some food on it um, for just these occasions. And so, yes, I came home with three boxes of Crunchberry cereal. Our pantry, as it were, is a is a bar height table in the basement that we just stack food randomly on top of. And well, that that well, table, that bar height table, if anybody can picture, I don't know if they still have these. I imagine they do. The tables at Chili's. Chili's restaurants are sort of these Mexican tiles. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. I know, about. of Nobody course, else knows what, what I'm talking about. about. Yeah. With a wood frame around them. And we were in Chili's once. And we thought, of course, this was before we had kids. We thought, this is kind of a cool table. And the manager said... He overheard us talking overheard about us it at and the said, table. We have some extra ones in the back, just the tabletop. And we went online and ordered a bar height table base thing is weighs a thousand pounds and can't be knocked over with a with a pickup truck and we bolted the chili's tabletop on it so we have a chili's bar top table in our basement and that is now what we keep our our food on well for a while that was what we used as our kitchen table when it was just you and me and then when we just had our oldest daughter if you remember this she was no longer in a high chair but she was in a little booster seat, the kind of booster seat that you attach to the chair. And so we had it attached to the bar height stool. And I don't remember exactly what age she was, but she had put her feet up on the table, pushed back. That chair went back. Did one of us catch the chair? Or no, did she... the chair went back. The back of the stool hit the ground. Her head didn't mercifully. And uh, she was relatively like com- unscathed, she was unscathed by it. 
but uh, partly because of her genetic lineage, a long history of of her forebears falling off bar stools. <laughs> right. Exactly. Except she and the bar stool went down timber like together. But the very next day, we went out and bought the kitchen table that we have now because we were never going to let that happen again and move the bar height table down to the basement where, yes, now it serves as like a secondary pantry for whatever. <laughs> I have a coupon for something or if things are on sale. It's it's good to have the overflow because sometimes Is we'll it? say, oh, we're out of whatever. And I'll say, oh, wait a minute, let's check the basement. And we come down and, oh, no, we're not out of peanut butter. We have some in the basement. Is it a secondary pantry or is it a primary pantry? No, we've got a pantry upstairs. That that thing with the doors that has the shelves that pull out. Those that's are just shelves. Pantry. Isn't that okay? No, that's, do we have a, that's our pantry. Do we have a tertiary pantry? <laughs> no, although... Uh, I'd like one. Uh, you would like one. But before that, Chili's Table became our secondary or a tertiary or possibly primary pantry. It was our kitchen table, as you mentioned. And I remember my brother Tom of Tom, Dick, and Harry fame coming to our house in Connecticut from Minneapolis and uh, asking if we were going to decorate the whole kitchen like a TGI Fridays, some sort of casual dining theme. And uh, Tom used to work at the pass of a TGI Fridays in, in Bloomington, so he would know whereof he speaks. What what did he do at the pass? Did he actually push the food through? Yeah, yeah he, he, he puts the, the, the sprig of parsley on the on the jalapeno poppers or whatever they whatever the thing was at the time. I was working at a Tom Thumb convenience store. Uh, it was Elfin mascot I wore on a red smock, and Tom was working at TGI Fridays. And I would either pick him up at midnight when Tom Thumb closed and his his job was winding down, or he would pick me up, whoever had the car. And um, we would either take TGI Friday appetizers or Tombstone frozen pizzas from the Tom Thumb, and we, we would go home and watch movies until 3 or 4 in the morning. This was in the blockbuster video age when we would rent stacks of, like, Woody Allen comedies or uh, The In-Laws with Alan Arkin uh, was, a, was a great, and Peter Falk was a great one that we remember. And I, it, I, I do write a little bit about this, this uh, our um, late-night movie club in my next book, but uh, that happened while he was working at TGI Fridays and I was working at The Thumb. As you're telling this story, uh, I have two questions that pop into my mind. One is, do any restaurants still put the sprig of parsley on the plate? I don't know. Why did they ever? I don't as know. As a kid, it really disturbed me. But I, but I remember as a kid, like, I, you know, my sister and I, this is when we'd be at the Big Boy restaurant. It, for us, it was in Westfield, Massachusetts, Abdow's Big Boy with the Big Boy guy out front. Anyway, that was our big treat as a family to go to Big Boy. We, my sister and I would kind of look at each other and you'd dare each other to see if you'd eat this, the sprig of parsley. But you don't see, you don't see that on plates anymore. And my second question... Well, can, can I just interrupt without interrupting? Yes. Uh, you don't see it on plates anymore, but it's the only time, it's the only time that I can think of that you get to use the word sprig in reference to parsley, is when you're, when you're talking about sparkly, parsley. You don't see a sprig of just about anything else, do you? Um, I, I can't think of it, no. I, I mean, I've never had a, a, a sprig of broccoli. Right. Broccoli doesn't come in sprigs, sprig form. <laughs> but uh, so this is my other question. You know, you talk about you and Tom in high school. Um, you're at Tom Thumb and he's at TGI Fridays. My job in high school was working in the tobacco fields in Southwick, Massachusetts. What are What's going to be our kids' high school job? Like they're going to need to do something in the summertime to, you know, earn some money and, and to earn a, or to you know, have a work ethic and just to work. And to have like, stories what? when they're our age sure. to, to 
tell their own kids because, I mean, everybody ought to have that experience. Maybe like bagging groceries, maybe at Stop and Shop, they can they can bag groceries. A couple of our kids could probably do that more efficiently than others, um, the ones with the better spatial awareness. But what else? What else would they? There are farms around here that you can work on. We have a good friend and they have a tobacco farm, but they said no high school kids um, want to work there because the, the work is too difficult. So Well, they won't do what we did. I mean, they might work in a fast food restaurant or scoop ice cream or something, but they're not going to ride their bike across town to the house of a guy named Smoke and ask him if they can work at the, you know, for the Minnesota Twins, which is what we did as kids. The guy's uh, name was Smoke? Smoke, yeah. How old was he? He was 58. And, and, and your, your dad said, why don't you go ask 58-year-old Smoke if he'll give you a job? No, my dad, I don't even think he was aware of it. My brother, my oldest brother, Jim, did this. He rode his bike to Smoke's house, asked him for a job, got a job working in the commissary at Met Stadium. And... Then my brother Tom and I were both legacies. Jim got us in to the Met so that we didn't have to go see smoke. But, you know, as with the election of popes, smoke determined whether or not you were were material to work boiling Schweigert hot dogs at Met Stadium. Speaking of receipts, yesterday you went to uh, CVS to purchase one item. Generally, when we go to CVS, it's to purchase one or two items. And for anyone who has CVSs and shops at CVS, the absurdity there, because I never have my CVS card. We talk about the stop and shop card. I have one of those on my keychain. I never have my CVS card. You can put in your phone number. Right. So you put in your phone number. The problem is at the end, and I'm holding it right now, I will send a picture of this thing. You measured it. The receipt that comes out with all of the coupons on it, because the receipt, because it was one item, it's two inches. But attached to that, were all of the coupons, and, and you measured it. How long? The receipt itself is 54 inches long, four and a half feet long. I mean, the absurdity. Crink, give it a good crinkle for the listeners. I mean, for, for people to hear. The best part, though, is the thing the things that it has the coupons for. Like, at least at Stop and Shop, some coupons will come out with the receipt. And generally, like the Captain Crunch, it's for something that I've purchased before. But... For CVS, that's not the case. You're sitting here, and I should take a picture, but you're sitting here like a town crier. You have a four and a half foot long scroll in your hands, and you're and you're going to read it out to us. I've unfurled or, or perhaps the scroll. You're like a 1930s baseball announcer who's recreating a baseball game and and holding a ticker tape that just keep that is endless. I feel more like because my hood is up on my sweatshirt. It's so cold down here. I feel sort of like Santa because it's the same thing, like with with the scroll. But anyway, the, uh, the things that we haven't purchased ever at CVS, but we have a coupon for So it, for example, and the other thing with the CVS coupons, they expire within a week. So if in the next week we need Miralax or a laxative powder, we have $2 off a laxative powder. We've never purchased a laxative powder. Well, that's why they're pushing CVS. it on us. Uh, unless it's, it, you've purchased one on one of your trips. This is a great one. $7 off any wrist, knee, back, ankle, or elbow brace. Again, this coupon expires in a week, but if in the next but, week but we need an ankle el- or elbow brace, we have seven dollars off. What I think, what I think happens here is the clerk gives you a quick once-over, and and then they press a few buttons on the register, and they they looked at me, and they said, "Let's give this guy a laxative and what is it, a back brace, and a, a knee back brace? brace?" Well, the other thing that they apparently thought you needed because we have five dollars off. For L'Oreal facial moisturizer, so yeah, I could see that it's yeah. winter time. You you've got scrub. Well, particularly and- if if after you take the uh, the Miralax, you will need both a back brace and moisturizer. 
And you will also need the, the $3 off coupon we have for pain reliever, which includes rubs or patches. So this is not just this is not just like Tylenol or or an oral pain reliever, but it includes rubs or patches. <laughs> I, I always enjoyed the uh, the pharmacies in New York before every before every drugstore became a CVS or a Dwayne Reed in Manhattan. You'd pass these pharmacies, and their windows would be full of that sort of band-aid colored leg warmer or. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Like the little... Yeah. And, yeah, they still and, sell those, like yeah. ankle braces. Like yeah. everything was Band-Aid colored. Walkers and yeah. various unguents and salves and balms and, and lotions. Say unguents one more time. <laughs> unguents, salves, balms, bequeathings you know, and bequestings. I sometimes think of those Band-Aid colored wraps in, in this context. Like if you go to a gym now and watch youth sports from you know second and third grade through high school kids are wearing their really nice nba like knee pads they're wearing elbow pads everything matches their uniform and what i would love to see sometime is some kid walk in looking like he just came from the y in the 1970s with the band-aid colored like knee wrap or ace thigh bandage. wrap. Yeah. yeah, ace bandage. Yeah, something do, do like that. Do people still wear ace bandages? No, they just use them to um, keep ice on after when they're icing. But, but it's really an ice bandage now. I want to see the kid come in in like that old school look, maybe socks pulled up, you know, not the $150 LeBron sneakers, but, you know, who knows what. Maybe Rex a pair specs. Of, like tennis shoes, Rex specs, and go out there and just kill it. Just, just make every shot, have the best handle in the world, be the best passer that you've seen. Yeah, I would love to see that. Better than Rex Specs are his actual own glasses with croquis, held on by croquis. Do you remember croquis? I don't remember croquis. You don't remember croquis? No. A neoprene band that you connected to each, each uh, the end of your glasses arms? I've, I think I've seen those on sunglasses, but you, you used to wear those on regular glasses? All the time. I wore those to play basketball all the time. And then, and then when you were finished, you would take the croquis off and you would pinch the croquis between your, your thumb and forefinger and, and drag it to the length of the croquis and squeeze the sweat out. And did it turn like white with sweat? The croquis? Yeah. Well, no, because it's always a lurid neon green or, or electric blue because this was in an era in the, in the 80s and 90s when everything were, were those colors. At what age did you transition to contact lenses? Did you wear... Well, no, I, wore, I, I, I had contact lenses. But, in high school. But, yeah, but sometimes, you know, I didn't... I mean, I never wore croquis like in a, in a high school basketball practice or game. But if we were just playing pickup, yeah, I would wear I would wear croquis or playing tennis in the park. I'd, I'd wear croquis. You sometimes, when we go for a jog, you won't put your contacts in. You'll wear your glasses. I think that would be extraordinarily uncomfortable. Like if I mean, I wear my contact lenses all day, but especially if I was going to be um, exercising and sweating and stuff. Like there are times when you've gone for a run, your glasses have fogged up. If uh, if it's out in the cold, yeah, but that doesn't bother you. I saw that. No, what it does bother me, and what what bothers me most about it is the effort required to hold the glasses on your face with just your ear muscles, <laughs> with sort of pinning your ear muscles back. Honestly, it gives you a, a you a, tighten your ear excedrin mu- headache number five. Oh, right, because you don't have a croaky these days, no. so you have to use your right. ears to keep it on. My, I think one of my favorite. I'm much closer to being a croaker than a croaky at this <laughs> this point. One of my favorite memories ever, and we, we may have told this story on the podcast before, but was um, 
when you were suffering horribly from seasonal allergies, but, and this was back when we had a lawnmower, so you'd purchased a mask to wear when you uh, mowed the lawn, but you just, they were crushing you. I had the misbegotten idea to get a riding lawnmower. I never had one as a kid. It was my rosebud. And when I, I saw one on the dealership floor, it was actually Lowe's or Home Depot, with a cup holder, and I could just picture myself mowing our yard, with a uh, with, uh, beverage in the cup holder, and, and the world is my oyster. It didn't work out that way. It didn't work out that way. But uh, so you had, you owned one of these masks for that reason, and, and it was that time of year, and, uh, and your, your allergies were, were acting up horribly, but you were not going to let that stop you from going for a run. And we went for a run together. You were wearing your glasses, using your ears to keep them on, and you were wearing the mask. <laughs> And I think you were wearing like colorful socks, like, you know, you don't wear the low ankle socks, so I don't know what color they were, um, you know, pulled up and, uh, but it was the springs or the, or the fall, whichever, when you have the terrible allergies and you're like in shorts, a t-shirt, colorful socks pulled up, your running shoes, your glasses and your mask. And I remember just looking at you thinking, I am so glad that I'm married to a man who does not give one crap about how he looks. We're just going to go for a run and we're going to enjoy it. And um, and that's that. <laughs> you, really, that would give you a feeling of pride? It, it actually, in a weird warped way, it really, really did. Well, you're correct in that I, I couldn't care less how I, how I look. Um, but uh, it made me think while you were saying that about my socks as the primary and sometimes tertiary folder of clothes in this house this has been this. I didn't. I didn't make a mental note of this for podcast purposes. But I was thinking this the other night. Whoever decided that left and right socks were going to be a thing? Oh, I think that was totally Nike. Wasn't somebody who folds laundry? I can tell them that. <laughs> How many times do I reach into the bin and oh, here are three white Nike socks? Oh, they're all three are left socks. It used to be you, you would lose socks in the dryer and the old. Uh, comedy hack right. uh, routine about, you know, where did all these socks go? I don't know, but where do, where do all the right or left socks go? So well, this is my thing because I have a lot of those that I wear when I exercise. And at one point I ended up with three right socks because all of my left ones got holes in them. So I don't know what that means about me biomechanically, but somehow I wear the left sock out but I don't wear the right sock out. So figure that one out you for me. rock out? With my sock out. <laughs> but what difference does it make if you wear two left socks? It's not like, it's it not like the phrase two left feet. That makes no difference but at all. But you know what? But I'm sure you, like me, I wear my left, my one that says L on my left foot, and I wear the one that says R on my right foot. I'm just, sure you do, even though we both know it doesn't matter. Just for the record, I, am, I was perfectly content with socks that were interchangeable. Unisex or uni, what would it be? Unisided socks? You were fine with that? I believe that? it would be unipedal. <laughs> Unipedi Biped, right. uniped. You were content with that? I was very content. I think the world was. It was a, it was a big marketing scheme slash scam. While you were talking, I just took a picture of you that I'm going to post on our Twitter feed, Ball and Chain Pod. Just so people know how cold it is down here, you, the outfit you're wearing, we were just talking about you and your mask. You're wearing your green puffy coat to keep you warm. And how exactly would you describe the hat that you're wearing? I'm not even sure what hat. Oh, the hat that I'm wearing? It's, yes. it's, a, uh, it's a San Francisco Giants. Winter hat, wool winter lined hat. with ear flaps. Right. 
and it's great and it keeps your head warm but it's not something that people probably mostly wear in the house and the fact that it took me until now to think I should take a picture of this this is a little bit different um, just shows kind of illustrates what I was talking about before you just don't care well, I, why would I care what I'm wearing in my own basement course, in should. front of nobody but you? No, I didn't you know you were going to take a picture. But I just will remind you that a couple of years ago, you went out to San Francisco for 12 hours for PEC 12 Media Day. You swung by what was then AT&T Park. They just changed the name this uh, fall, this winter. And, um, and you brought back this hat for me. And I, so I'm wearing it. No, I did. I went to the... Um, I went to the giant store that was right near the park. I got that for you. I like that hat. It's a nice warm hat. I got something for each one of our kids. And um, yeah, I'm glad you're wearing it. I like it. One of the things that helps when it's this cold outside is eating hot meals. And last week, I made a soup. I made a sausage and pasta soup. I put it in the crock pot and I had to go to studio. It was a Monday night so I wasn't going to be home for dinner. I told you, I, I told you the exact time at, I think 15 minutes before you want to eat, just take this cup of pasta, uncooked pasta, and put it into the crock pot with the rest of the soup. It was all measured out. I told you just 15 minutes before you're going to serve this soup, put the pasta into the soup. And uh, a part of our season of melting meats. Yes, but this was not a melting meat. This was, this was a soup. And because uh, you had told me, you know, the week before that you really enjoyed a chicken noodle soup I'd made. So, again, it was cold. It just seemed like a good meal for, for a nice cold night. And I sent you a text saying this chicken noodle soup is delicious. And, and you replied something along the lines of, was I, was I mocking you? Was I was I?" No, I think I just, was, I think I just said that's really nice to hear because you rarely tell me that something that you that you've really enjoyed something, and especially if I'm not home. Like for you to text me, I was like, oh. I think you said this chicken noodle soup is really hitting the spot. This is right when you were kind of coming back from the flu. So anyway, so I, I make this, I made another kind of soup because the one the week before had hit the spot for you. Was was there or was there not meat melting in this crock pot? There was meat simmering. It wasn't really melting. and um, Meatballs, right? It was, yeah, that's what it was. It wasn't sausage. It was meatball and uh, and pasta soup. So... I tell you exactly what to do. Once again, to paint this picture, I've measured out the pasta. It's in a cup. All you got to do is pour it in. And anyway, when I came home that night... I poured it in. And and then, when it was time to serve dinner, let's let everyone know how that went. I I put plates on the table, and (laughs) I used a slotted spoon to scoop out the meatballs and the pasta and drain off whatever, whatever watery surround it had. And... 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 We, I served them meatballs and pasta. The watery surround. My, 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 in my mind, it was pasta and meatballs. Not an unusual combination, though not as appetizing as I would have liked to have seen it. The watery surround, as you put it, was, of course, broth because it was a soup. A I soup didn't, I didn't that know had it was a soup. tomatoes in it, had onions in it, had uh, celery in it, like normal the tomatoes, soup. The tomatoes and the onions in were... were were in the catch basin of the slotted spoon, okay, so they made, still, the, made, the, made the plate. You know, but that's the kind of stuff, as you know, that the kids would like to strain out. So I thought with the slotted spoon, I could get the meatballs and the pasta on the plate without you the tomatoes and the, and the onion. You didn't any of that. You just didn't realize it was a soup. I even didn't. Though, even though I had repeatedly told you it was a soup when I was explaining how to how to Shouldn't it be empirically obvious and to me that it is a soup? Well, it sh- well, I'm sure it would have been empirically obvious to almost every other human being. But I had also 
purchased rolls or bread or something that I said, you know, um, when you put the noodles in. I made the, the bread in, and the dog jumped up on the kitchen table and oh, ate, ate the, the bread. bread. Yeah, that, that's a problem. But anyway, so instead of serving this nice, hearty, warm soup, I get home to hear that you served them the meatballs and pasta. And nobody complained. The they seemed to like it. The, the, granted, the meatballs were rolling around on the white plate in the uh, as an homage to your old hate on, hate a, plate on a plate meal that you served us once. But and, um, and I'll yeah. have to say, it was the first time I've made that recipe, and it was outstanding because I had some when I got home late that night. It was a delicious, delicious soup, and um, and next time I make it, I trust that you will serve it as such. Well, I think the, I think uh, it works both ways. Let's put it that way. As the parent charged with driving our oldest daughter to high school every morning, I was coming back from school the other day. This is about 7.30 in the morning. And a car approached me in the opposite lane on a two-lane stretch of road, and the driver flashed his lights at me. And what does this tell you when when a driver flashes his or her lights at you? Well, it it has two meanings in my world. Oh, 7.30 in the morning, it's light out. That means, of course, that up ahead is a law enforcement officer. That's exactly what what I thought and that's exactly what happened to that's exactly what turned out to be the case. And but my feeling when he flashes lights at me was he is drawing me into his criminal conspiracy. And, and you you didn't ask for this. You didn't, I didn't ask, ask for this. For somebody I don't want to be I don't want to be aiding and abetting a, a speeder. Right. Well, but he was the one aiding and abetting a speeder. You were you I wasn't were, speeding. Okay. Well, he he was the one doing the aiding and abetting. You were doing nothing wrong, but you felt like you were doing something wrong by receiving this signal. Yeah, like I'm I'm fencing stolen goods. I'm not even sure what that means, fencing, but neither do I. I think I think when you're fencing stolen goods, you are you you have a sword and you're you're poking and jabbing the the stolen goods with a with a <laughs> with an epi. Okay. Well, at night, I I have flashed people with my head with my headlights <laughs> in the evening I have when they don't have their lights on because sometimes and it might even be pitch black but perhaps there's street lights on the street so somebody doesn't have their headlights on so I always will flash my headlights turn them on and off because if somebody does that to me the first thing I do is look down afraid that I have my my high beams on but then also it's to me an indication okay do I have my headlights on or do I not have them on so anyway when I, when I do that to people in the evening, off, on, off, on with my headlights, and then they'll pass me and I'll look in my rearview mirror and just about never do they turn their lights on. Like, what are they thinking? Maybe they're thinking I'm telling them a police officer is ahead. Maybe their headlights don't work. How, how often do we see a car with just one headlight? There have to be as many out there with no headlights. Yeah, you can't drive with no headlights at night, I though. see it. You just said we you see it. We see one it. headlight plenty, but at least those people can still see what's in front of Last them. Night, if somebody had no headlights, that would be horribly dangerous. Last night I was driving home in the pitch dark, uh, or driving to open gym with the kids in the, in the car, and as I approached in the intersection, now we don't drive through all that often, but probably once a week during basketball season, I realized as I was almost in the intersection that there are traffic lights there and the traffic lights were all out in, in, in all four directions. And there was a car coming coming from the left, but not near enough to, to uh, be in any danger. And, um, and then when I came home an hour later, that same way, there were police there. There were four stop signs set up at that intersection. They were working on the, I guess, what would have been the power. 
I had an interesting thing happen to me this past week. Uh, I was at a girls basketball game and I was watching the game and getting more and more frustrated as there was an inability of players to pass and catch the basketball. And it was just simple trying to inbound the basketball. A pass was made, kids couldn't catch it, and it happened multiple times. And so as I'm watching this youth game, I sent out a tweet, and this is what it said. It says, the James Harden highlights are cool and all, but we really need to be teaching kids how to pass and catch and pass and catch and get teammates open and pass and catch. Keep in mind, I'm at a youth basketball game. Well, I cannot tell you how many Houston Rockets fans that tweet upset. I've had a ton of people um, send me at replies furious with me that I would that I would criticize James Harden. Well, so that's because you're on Twitter. People, no, I know people. I mean, it's just a it's just a bathroom wall on which to scrawl graffiti. Absolutely. So in the past couple of days, I haven't even really p- taken a peek at my mentions please, please because don't. because it's just people who are saying some of them saying kind of nasty things about this so anyway i just wanted to bring it up to say there's nothing critical of james harden on the contrary on the contrary you are not going to be james harden right you're not going to be steph curry you're you're not not going to be clay thompson that's you can't do what they're doing to compensate for that learn to play fundamental basketball learn to play fundamental basketball so you know i you and i have seen thousands of youth basketball players boys and girls and this is not a criticism of these kids but none of them is going to be one of the top five players in the world when they're an adult and so watching those highlights is cool it's fun like watching any of the nba guys well, do what they course, do you don't is have exciting to explain and all that stuff i know i'm just i'm just explaining and so it was just absurd, and it still is, because, you know, people are... I went When I was in ESPN yesterday, I had a few people say something to me about it, and I had to explain to them, this was not a criticism of James Harden. This was a frustration I have with all of the youth basketball games that I'm watching day in and day out, that we can't teach our kids the fundamentals so that they can just complete a pass. That's all. It isn't, it isn't a criticism of James Harden, one of the best... Right. Athletes ever to play right. the game of basketball. Right. It's an illustration of how unlikely, almost impossible, it will be to emulate his game as a 10-year-old kid right. in a travel league, okay? But we see every week kids pulling up from 30 when they can't inbound a basketball. Or, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, going through the legs 100 times with a cross, you know, between the legs dribble without actually going anywhere while a teammate might be wide open under the basket, but they simply can't and don't know how to complete a pass to that kid. Which is so. fine. They're kids. All you're saying is, is learn how to do this stuff and coaches teach them. My, my thing is it's on the coaches. Exactly. It's on the coaches to teach these kids. And, and, and it's not easy, you know, cause I coach a lot of different age levels, boys and girls, and it's not just as simple as, you know, this is how you make a chess pass. This is how you make a bounce pass. It's a, it's a, passing is a huge, huge skill. And it's on us to try to make the kids better at it. But anyway, that's all I'll say about that. I've had this written down in my notes folder in my phone for weeks now, since the last time I took our kids to get a haircut. But I was talking to the woman who cuts our kids' hair, uh, Nikki, 
and I s- asked her because when when I've been in the um, the place that we take our kids, it's called Snippets. It's designed just for little kids. They play video games and whatever as they're getting their hair cut. But it, it's it's a barber shop for kids. And I said to her, you know, I've noticed that most of the time, if a dad is in the barber shop with his son, the son is getting it has the same exact haircut as the dad. And I asked her, you know, do you notice that? Like when a dad brings his kid in, his son in to get his haircut that he has the son get the haircut that he has. And what was fascinating to me is she's... Does the son look like a middle-aged man or does the dad have like the the hair gelled up in the front? I think it's usually the hair gelled up in the front. But this was the part that was interesting to me. She said, no, it's actually... She said it used to be, but it's actually become the reverse. A kid will get his hair cut however he wants it cut. The dad will like it. And then the dad will get his hair cut like his sons. And I was just I was just thinking in my brain, right there is what's wrong with the world. <laughs> Dads are now using their kids, all right, let, let's see what this haircut looks like on you. Or, oh, you know, my seven-year-old's got some style. That's how I should have my hair. I mean, it's not something you have to deal with because you're a bald man. It's a distant pipe dream for me. But... Uh, but I, that was fascinating. So all the dads out there, let us know. Send us a tweet. Send us an email, ballandchainpod at gmail.com. And let us know, do you get your hair cut like your son? Your son comes home. Maybe he's in high school. He's driven himself to the barbershop. He comes home and you're like, oh, it's a great looking haircut on a 17-year-old. That would also look good on a 52-year-old. Does this apply to mothers and daughters as well? You know what? I don't know. You don't quite see that as much. But I think the I mean, one... I mean, Kids now, we've talked about this past, wear mom jeans. That's a right. fashion statement. Right. And moms, obviously, often try to dress Our like f- their like their teenage daughters. I don't say often, but you do see it. One of my favorite moments was our 14-year-old daughter, who's very tall. My mother was tall. I think she may have asked me if my dad still had any of my mom's old jeans because those of course would have been mom jeans grandmom jeans that our daughter could have worn so there you go the cycle of fashion when you were in high school you didn't ask your mom if you could borrow your grandmother's jeans (laughs) right right you know what's funny though because i had big feet even as a middle schooler and there was a you know a stretch of time where i wore the same size clothes as my mom but of course i was a kid she was an adult there's nothing in her closet that was interesting to me. The only time I ever borrowed anything was if I had to dress up and needed like dress up shoes to wear to an event. And this was, you know, seventh or eighth grade. And then I would have to borrow my mom's, you know, lowest pair of heels or some pair of shoes that I thought were hideous, but they fit me. And I certainly, she certainly wasn't going to spend money on a pair of shoes that I would wear to one function. Well, shall we, shall we do viewer mail? We shall do viewer okay, mail. Okay, let's, let's do viewer we mail. Shall. Big bad book, throw our lure, reel us in with your viewer mail. Ball and at gmail.com. That's where the viewer mail goes, uh, the email anyway. And Scott writes, uh, my wife found this during her morning review of her news sites. It appears important that the ball and chain holiday planning may be changed forever with this. The White Castle Valentine's Day dinner reservation. See link below. And here's a news story. White Castle begins taking Valentine's Day dinner reservations. Dateline Columbus, headquarters of White Castle. The company says more than 30,000 people are expected to dine at White Castle restaurants on February 14th. The experience includes hostess seating, music, tableside service, and decorations. I will promise you this, that 
if that offer continues in future years, maybe it's after our kids are in college, maybe one of our kids will go to Ohio State, who knows, I will on Valentine's Day, probably for lunch, take you to a White Castle, we'll have hostess seating, and you can have whatever your heart desires. Maybe they'll still have, what did they call their loose meat sandwich? White Castle's loose meat sandwich? Yeah. I don't remember. But you can have one of those. You can just White Castle till your, till your heart's content. Restiva writes, Tanya, I've enjoyed the first podcasts of the new year. I've thought about other aspects to comment on. However, what I've thought of most is that over the last few months, I've really enjoyed the vocabulary word sections of the show on purpose and by chance, and I think they should be a regular part of the show. I've never heard ludicrous used in a conversation so fluently as in the podcast two weeks ago. Do we, we don't really have a regular vocabulary uh, segment, but I, I like the fact that the uh, podcast, apparently, at least for Tanya, uh, is, is ex- increasing her vocabulary. Well, as part of the vocabulary segment, I did look up, we were having the dis- discussion earlier between bequest and bequeath and the difference. And so I've looked up the definition of bequest and the definition is the action of bequeathing something. So there you go. No, but, but there you don't go. What does bequeathing something mean? In, well, bequest, the, the noun definition is a legacy. Synonyms are inheritance, endowment, estate, heritage, settlement, provision, benefaction, gift. Okay. Okay. So you get the idea. So I, I'll be avoiding both of those words in the future. <laughs> Will you, you won't bequeath me something? <sighs> <laughs> I'm going to leave that one on the table. Um, I've got a uh, viewer mail that came in via Twitter, once again, at Ball and Chain Pod. And it says, you know, last week or the week before, I was talking about how when I go to South Bend, Indiana, it's never, the sun is never shining. And I, I was starting to take it personally. The sun never shines on South Bend, Indiana? The sun never shines on South Bend, Indiana. And someone, uh, Billy, Billy Gallagher, is that Denny's, a relation to Denny? It may or may not be. His response is, those of us that went to school in South Bend call that phenomenon, quote, permacloud, unquote, the thick overcast that settles in in late October and generally stays put through about April. Also, there is, in fact, a North Bend, Indiana. It's south of South Bend. (laughs) So... So there you go. You gave somebody a hard time for call, asking if I was in North Bend, Indiana. Well, there is a North Bend, Indiana, darn it, and it's south of South Bend. Well, while we're getting geography lessons, by the way, was that Billy with one L? It, no, it was two L's, okay. which is what's throwing That's me off. throwing me. Uh, this is a geography lesson, is the header of this email, and it comes from Jim. Hey, Steve, he writes, thanks for coming to our gym in Colchester, where your oldest daughter played our team. You identified it on the podcast as a school on the shoreline. You may want to check your mapping app. Long Island Sound is another 20 miles south. I love this because as somebody who grew up 2,000 miles from the shoreline, I would consider 20 miles from the shoreline the shoreline. Am I wrong? I think it's all about perspective. I think for you to say it's on the shoreline is very fair. Jim is, is our frosting eater. You're right. Frosting eating friend from, uh, from Colchester. 20 miles from the shoreline. As a regular listener with my wife, he writes, I recall one of your dream jobs as a Minnesotan is driving a Zamboni. Check out this ad. And better yet, it actually is on the shoreline. And he encloses a photograph of an ad from The Day, the newspaper down in New London, uh, on call Zamboni drivers. This uh, place is looking for employment opportunities at Connecticut College. 
he used to practice there with the Connecticut Sun. Connecticut they're Sun, looking the for an on-call Zamboni driver. All that's necessary is a driver's license. Well, all that's necessary is a driver's license and no other job. And a love of Zam. I mean, of how, Zamboni. Can you be an, how can you be an on-call? You can be an on-call, you know, ER doctor. My how be- are you an on-call Zamboni driver? My beeper goes off, and right? and. Connecticut College needs resurfacing. I'm there. Can't that can't that be a, a job it, where somebody could have structured hours? I mean, I understand there's jobs where you need to have someone on call, but I don't think that driving a Zamboni is necessarily one of them. Jim adds as a PS, no longer allowed to eat frosting for breakfast, which is disappointing. But um, but he's still allowed to eat it for lunch and dinner. He I, just well, can't. I, I certainly hope so. It's his, his wife didn't know she that he did that until it was mentioned on the podcast. Right. Sandy with an I writes, I know it sounds obvious, and I think she's referring to a previous podcast where you talked about, um, we talked about, we frequently talk about Big Pharma and those commercials that say, do not take if you're allergic. Right. 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 She says, I know it sounds obvious, but my experience might shed a little light on the subject. Of course you wouldn't take any meds you knew you were allergic to, but I developed a rash caused by meds I had been taking for a couple of years. I stopped taking that med immediately, but couldn't have predicted the rash developing based on its successful use previously. Hope that clears up the warning to, quote, not to take if you're allergic. And it's she then, actually makes me more confused. Well, you can develop an allergy to that medication. But then, but how do you know? You don't know. I okay. mean, it's part of the absurdity of those, of those big the, the liability disclaimer. R- absolutely. And speaking of which, K, just the letter K, K period writes, uh, a question for you both. In your, well, this is not the part that's big farmer related, but we'll get to that. In your jobs, both of you fly so much. I wonder, how do you do it? Flying for you is like a car commute for us. Do you like flying? I've never liked to fly. I carry my rosary beads with me, and when my kids were younger, I would have our priest bless us when we would fly out to California. I should know better. I'm a scientist, but that doesn't stop my nerves. Any tips for a nervous flyer? I've never been a particularly nervous flyer, more of a more of a anxious flyer, but not because of any safety issues, just because of the experience of flying is frequently an unpleasant one. I don't love flying, but I don't mind flying. Although I will say this, I have to fly tomorrow night, Wednesday night, uh, the night that the podcast comes out. I have to fly to Knoxville, Tennessee, because Notre Dame is going to Knoxville to play a women's basketball game, and I will be calling it. And I am second, not second guessing, but thinking twice just because of the government shutdown. I mean, the most important people in aviation right now are the air traffic controllers, and I believe they're some of the people who are working without pay. I should be fine in terms of TSA at Hartford Airport because it's not, you know, a high-volume airport, and when I come home, I'll be going through the TSA in Knoxville, so I don't imagine that will be crazy, but um, the government shutdown definitely has given me a little bit more pause than I would normally have when it comes to flying. Uh, Kay adds uh, several links, a couple of links to the naming of big pharma drugs. We've talked about this in the past. Restiva, the seven letters that are se- seemingly key to the naming uh, the names of new drugs, and she, uh, he or she, encloses a couple of links to um, stories on how they're named. And just let me give you a quick overview. In the United States, it takes an average of 12 years for an experimental drug to travel from the lab to your medicine cabinet. It costs about $2.7 billion to bring a medicine from invention to pharmacy shelves. A drug gets patented for 20 years. Generic drugs are allowed for sale after the expiration of the patent of the original drug. Generic makers, therefore, don't face the same costs as the original manufacturer of the brand name drug, which is why their drugs can be much cheaper. Yes, Kay, she writes, I do work for a drug company, but I am just a biologist. And she adds that uh, 
speaking of science, Steve, you really shouldn't eat any food that has fallen onto a New York street. Well, so it doesn't that. take a scientist to tell you that. Speaking of food, we have a tweet from WBB Fanatic. It says, I love Great British Baking Show, because you and I were talking about how we've been binge-watching the Great British Baking Show, which is phenomenal. And she said, and I have started baking. This is a practice bake. I'm going to retweet this because it comes with a picture. This is a practice bake for my feminist farmer. We remember back many podcasts ago. It's like the about Philly the fanatic, farmer, the feminist farmer, AKA, both with PHs. AKA the pharmacist. Right who is turning 22 next week. So I will retweet this so you can see the picture of the cake. I mentioned that this past weekend we had a huge snowstorm on Sunday. Wasn't We couldn't we couldn't really leave the house because of the roads. And so moms with daughters in particular understand that one way to pass the time is to bake. So I with our daughter made a delicious chocolate cake. Our 12-year-old daughter made a delicious chocolate cake with a chocolate fudge, fudge drizzle. I made two different flavors of homemade ice cream our daughter made buckeyes the chocolate covered peanut butter things and which which requires me by law to name the greatest johnny carson karnak the magnificent of all time which was buckeyes was the answer of course and the question was what is even worse than buck teeth the problem is when you told our daughter that joke she didn't get it um which is which is a shame but it's it's hilarious it's, I, it's I, classic, I still like classic that, karnak uh, that classic karnak so anyway um I may be rolling myself to Knoxville this week after making all those delicious treats. Well, it's funny that you mention um, British Baking Show because Andrew writes, uh, my daughter turned me on to the British Baking Show back in the fall. It took all of two episodes to get hooked. The attractive element to the show, aside from picking up baking tips, is how nice the bakers are to each other, which is not something you'd see in American reality TV competition shows. The American version of the show is only meh, just like their attempts to reproduce Top Gear. I thought the bakers were not as good. Um, they did. I, they did create a, a one season of the American uh, baking show. I've never. Paul seen Hollywood it. was the was the judge, and oh, he was. He was, and I heard him talking on the Desert Island Discs podcast that I frequently listen to. That uh, that the reason it wasn't a success in America. He was asked that question was because they tried to make it a quick cut, much more American reality kind of show it wasn't the same show that he did they filmed the same show but, but it was edited differently it is edited differently in a sort of american reality idiom and nobody liked it because <laughs> what we like about the british baking show is just what you describe it is it is everybody's nice everybody's it's, civil it's it's pleasant it's, it's pleasant it's people being pleasant to one another the judges are mostly pleasant as they're baking it's just nice to sit there and not have the fake confrontation and drama, and we need something more pleasant in our lives. We do. Uh, George, my, uh, my monocle dealer, writes, You mentioned during some winter months your church adopts a type of flu protocol whereby parishioners forego the usual handshake of peace. True. Do they also, he, he asks, modify the procedure for communion? In many Catholic churches, communicants receive the wine by drinking from the same chalice. Usually the priest or minister will wipe the chalice with a linen cloth after each person, but does it make sense to eliminate a handshake, but then invite dozens of people to drink from the same cup? Well, yeah, the, during this time of year, they don't allow you to take the communion orally. They put it in your hand. 
And if you want to drink some of the wine, they well, put you're it in, still taking it orally. W- well, yeah, unless, unless you, they're giving it to you right. not orally. And when you go, if you want the wine, they just put it in a syringe and shoot it into your mouth. No, they, they, they don't. They don't <laughs> no. give that intravenous. I don't think they do. They don't. Though. They don't. don't they they do suspend the, 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 the wine during the flu season. And uh, my favorite thing is, particularly as an altar boy, was when they would wipe the wipe the the chalice and then give it a little. A little, like, maybe a, a 10 degree turn. Right. Well, when you keep turning it, I mean, eventually it comes around to the same spot that the first person right. drank out of. And is the act of turning somehow cleansing the rim of the of the chalice? I'm pretty sure that I've never in my life taken a sip from that. I, from the time I was a kid, I, I just didn't think it was appealing. <laughs> and the priest would always then drink the dregs of it when it was, right. when it was done. Right. So. God bless him. God bless him. Brian writes, uh, Rebecca. You're talking about Niall Horan, of course, of One Direction fame. Reminds me for that for the second time I saw One Direction. Yes, I've seen the boys twice. My daughter and her friend decided to make shirts. In her excitement, my daughter made a Team Nail, N-A-I-L-L, shirt. She ended up making a new shirt, but he is still known as Nail in our household. By the way, writes Brian, not sure if you watch Mrs. Maisel, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. We, do, we don't yet. We don't yet, but everybody but tells us, yeah. enough people have told us we should watch it. But the season finale has a scene in the Dublin house. I didn't see the plaque where they commemorate your first meeting. Keep potting, Brian. That blows my mind. Well, we have to watch the first season just so we can get to the season finale. Because, of course, it's set in like the late 50s or the early 60s. I'm not sure which. And they need to find you and I met at the Dublin house. They need to find atmospheric locations that would look exactly the same now as they did... And everything on the inside of ago. the Dublin House is probably the exact same. And everything as it was, on the including outside, the bottles of alcohol, and everything on the outside of the Dublin House, including the customers. And when I walked <laughs> by Dublin House this October, they had a vinyl banner outside advertising drink specials for Monday Night Football. That clearly wouldn't have been there in the fifties, right? But everything else would be exactly the same. All right, we have one more tweet that comes into viewer mail, and this is from Matthew Bartleson. And he says, I'm here reporting from JFK. I've been up since 1 a.m. in Cancun, and I have one of the craziest travel stories to tell whilst sick. I'm sending an email. It's a doozy. Be on the lookout. Now, Matthew, we haven't gotten the email yet, but instead of writing all of this down in an email, send us an audio file. We could use the audio file at ballandchainpod at gmail.com, and then you can tell the story, and we will play it on the podcast. We have a, a viewer, one last viewer mail here to ballandchainpot at gmail.com. And we talked on the show about after we watched Bruce Springsteen on Broadway on Netflix and you kicked Bruce to the curb at 9 p.m. to go to bed. Um, Bruce kicked me to the curb. Right. Well, Bruce talked on that wonderful special about uh, he, basically he invented the Jersey Shore and the whole Jersey you know, phenomenon. Shore scene, yeah. yes. And we've had other people push back on that. Um, well, Patty... Patty writes, some background information on the shore, pre-Bruce. A seaside community, Asbury Park, is located on New Jersey's central coast, developed in 1871 as a residential resort by New York brush manufacturer James Bradley. The city was named for Francis Asbury, the first American bishop of the Methodist Episcopal Church in the U.S. Here's a postcard from Asbury Park from the 1920s, and it's just this lovely seaside setting. Uh, Beautiful, full-color postcard. People would visit the shore to vacation as far back as the 1880s. This picture... She encloses is from 1911. Another beautiful photograph of of people in 
swimsuits up to their neck with billowing skirts from 1911. If I can figure out how to get it from the Gmail to our Instagram account, which is Ball and Chain Pod at in, uh, the, at Instagram, or not Instagram, but anyway, I will post these pictures there. Okay, I want to get to the end of this email. At least seven U.S. presidents vacationed in Long Branch at the Jersey Shore. James Garfield. Rutherford Hayes, Chester Arthur, Benjamin Harrison, William McKinley, Woodrow Wilson, and Richard Nixon. The church there is now named Seven Presidents Church. This correspondence has a son whose grandparents owned a motel from 1959 to 1963 at the new seaside resort of Shark River Hills, the new pleasure resort. And here's an ad for, for that. In 1915, the Senate Amusement Company of Philadelphia constructed the first boardwalk-like attraction in Seaside Heights. In the 1870s, there was a train that ran all the way to Tuckerton, New Jersey, to bring tourists to the shore. Here's a picture of Asbury Park in the 1960s, and it is just, it is just gorgeous. It's, it's an amazing photograph, but we can post that when we will. And let me get to the kicker here. You can't bring in Snooky to corroborate anything to do with New Jersey or the Jersey Shore because she's a New Yorker. The Jersey girl in me gets a bit annoyed when Snooky is referred to as Jersey. This is signed by Patty, with two T's, Gallagher, Denny's mom, travel consultant. Travel leaves you speechless, then turns you into a storyteller. www.travelwithvista.com So not only the length of the email, but the depth of the email, sending the pictures. The illustrations. Yeah, just to show us that no, indeed, Bruce did not invent the Jersey Shore scene. So yes, I absolutely will do my best to post those pictures on Instagram so people can see them for themselves. And can I just say, 200 years ago, when I first moved to New York out of college, uh, a group of, of fellow fact-checkers and editors and um, reporters from Sports Illustrated, whose weekend was Tuesday and Wednesday, would travel down to the Jersey Shore to a rented house in Seagirt, New Jersey. And I would frequently go down there once, once I was properly vetted and uh, accepted into this group. And the New Jersey Transit train ride from Penn Station to Spring Lake, the, the, the station stops along the shore were, were like music. So Bruce may be the poet of the Jersey Shore, but I really think New Jersey Transit is the, is the true and greatest poet of the Jersey Shore. Listen to these, listen to these stations from, from Penn Station to, to um, Spring Lake. You travel, from, you travel to uh, well, Secaucus, not all that great. No. Newark. Uh, North Elizabeth, Linden, Rahway, Rahway, where the state prison was, Avenel, Woodbridge, Perth Amboy, South Amboy. I always remember that Perth Amboy, South Amboy, the Amboys. Aberdeen, Matawan, Hazlitt, Middletown, Red Bank, Little Silver, Long Branch, Elberon, Allenhurst, Asbury Park, Bradley Beach, Belmar, Spring Lake, Manasquan, Point Pleasant Beach, and Bayhead. Know what would fit beautifully in there? North Bend and South Bend. But from those musical stations, let's send it to Tom, Dick, and Hari. Play us out. Sing says no pain, no gain, and we found that to be fact. The road might twist and turn a bit, but we all arrive intact. Mr. Mom and Mrs. Dad having each other's back. Day by day, just to keep it sane. Who's the ball and who's the chain? It's hard to tell right here on Happiness Lane. Six of us and the family pet live in the cuckoo nest. Daily grind puts your sanity 
to a daily test Androgynous ambiguous What we give for a little rest Stay by day just to keep it sane Who's the ball and who's the chain It's hard to tell right here on Happiness Lane It's hard to tell right here on Happiness Lane It's hard to tell right here on Happiness Lane